In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Diane O'Connell joins us this week on Money Tales. Diane had a successful career as an attorney for nearly two decades, and then she began struggling with a silent culprit, generalized anxiety disorder. It wasn't a tangible injury with a straightforward recovery plan. Diane's journey to healing was like navigating an uncharted path where the source of her anxiety was elusive. Through treatment, Diane came to realize the condition was rooted in her deep-seated fear of financial scarcity. This led her to unravel the complex layers of her relationship with money. Today, Diane is an author, speaker, coach, workplace culture reinvention strategist, attorney, and mediator. Diane is on a mission to annihilate the belief that mental health, well-being, and belonging are quote-unquote soft topics by demonstrating the business case that will empower business leaders to realize measurable successes that reduce risk and improve profitability. Here are three key money topics Diane hits on in this conversation. First, how she believes she never had enough money, even when Diane was making 10 times the amount she earned when she was a younger person. Second, what it felt like to have generalized anxiety disorder. And third, how she felt like a fraud when receiving short-term disability insurance because she wasn't going to work, and how maddening it was to later learn that she didn't meet the requirements for her long-term disability coverage. We hope you share this episode with a friend, and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Diane O'Connell. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammy, I wanted to share with you and listeners that I had the opportunity earlier this week to present to a group of financial advisors that were visiting our company from Australia. Oh, talking to the down under. Yes, there are maybe 25 advisors and our colleague Melissa Punim and I had a chance to share about what we're doing in my group, which is planning strategy and research and what Melissa and her team are doing in our strategic planning group. It was so nice to be able to share about everything we're doing in terms of the client experience and the wealth planning platform that we've built at Asperian that's so client focused and also some of the operational aspects of what we're involved with to build up processes and procedures that support the work we do for clients. That was really fun in and of itself. But what was even more fun was the opportunity to hear from our guests what their experience is and see where there's cross-cultural connections and disconnections. 
tell us about that, Cindy. So was there any big surprise about whether how similar we are or how different we from a regulation or how we approach this business? There are definitely different regulations. It did seem like the Australian market was a little further behind in that they're still tethered more from a past of transactions and investment advice, but definitely becoming more holistic in their approach. I think they were really impressed by the way that we approach the work that we do with multiple generations of the family and focusing not just on the person or couple sitting in front of us, but really looking at the whole big picture and helping clients think about what's most important to not only them, but their entire family and how do we get the other members of the family involved in those conversations. Melissa had a lot to share on the strategic planning side of things because she has a gift of being able to help clients plan for asset transfers and really be effective with the use of their resources and minimizing taxes along the way. Sandy, what a gift for us to share what we've learned and all this work we put into processes and procedures and how we serve clients. That's really special. It was fun to be able to take a step back and share that with a lot of pride and also, again, learn and field some of the questions that this group was having and understanding how things are done in Australia right now. And it made me very hopeful for the whole world. There's just so much great planning going on and it's touching people around the globe. And that was a really nice feeling to walk away with. I just returned from a legal conference in Mexico City and it was fascinating because I think his title was the consulate of corporate consumer for the country of Mexico. And he got up and spoke all about their financial goals and their commercial initiatives and trying to become self-sustaining and advancing technology. And it was just really fascinating from being in New York and hearing news stories about Mexico and then being down there and seeing exactly what the business development is. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Ultimately, it just seemed like the folks in Mexico want exactly the same thing as the folks in Australia or the folks in the UK or New York, wherever you are. Humans are humans. We all have our needs. We're just human and want to be successful and valued. It was really, really interesting. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Diane. And I'll take a moment to welcome you, Diane O'Connell, to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you. Diane, would you introduce yourself and in doing so, share a couple pivotal moments taking place in your life that really impacted who you are today? I don't know if we have actually enough time, but I'll give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm Diane O'Connell. I am from New York. I am an author, speaker, coach, workplace culture reinvention strategist, and I'm also an attorney and a mediator. I practiced international business development law for 18 years but was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and decided to leave the practice of law to pursue a pivot in career and start a business helping law firms reduce risk and improve productivity by creating a culture of well-being. Wow, that's an amazing goal. Big shift. Big shift. (laughs) A lot of insecurities on that one. (laughs) We all have those, and I can't wait to hear about some of the successes as well. Before we go there, Diane, would you share with us more of your backstory? And when you were young, when did money start having meaning to you? Interestingly enough, I grew up in a a single parent household. My mom is now 85 and still healthy, but the mantra in our household has always been, 
I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. And so from a very early age, you know, I remember in first grade going to school and my mother packing a lunch that I just didn't like. But at the same point, I looked at it and I was like, but she worked really hard to earn the money to buy this food. So I can't not eat it because that would hurt her feelings or it would be disrespectful or it would diminish the effort she's putting in. That's heavy as a young person to have. Totally. That (laughs) appreciation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It had a huge impact because what it did was, is it created this, I want to say it's a psychosis, but I'm not really sure if it is, but it really created a mindset of financial scarcity. And so the only money lessons I learned growing up was scarcity. I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I never learned how to manage money. And other than not hearing about being able to pay the rent, we didn't have any money conversations in the household. My mother thought it was private and it wasn't something to be discussed. So I grew up having absolutely no clue how to manage money. (laughs) When did that become apparent to you, Diane? I'm curious. I think probably when I was a teenager and I had a job and I was using my money to go buy disco pants and (laughs) glittery tops and stuff to go out with my friends. I thought it was cool. But then when it came time for me to start paying the rent and I started the same dialogue in my head of every month, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I was like, wait a second. This isn't me speaking. This is some alter ego that was brainwashed when I was four or five years old speaking. I began to be aware of it very early on in my 20s. And it had a gripping effect on my relationship with money. It was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that no matter how much money I made, I never had enough. I always felt scarcity. Even when I was an attorney and I was making you know high six figures, I remember freaking out going, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. And I'm like, wait a second, you're making like 10 times the money you were making in your 20s and you're still saying the same thing? Like, what is that? So I really started to like readdress my relationship with money and look at it and make it less important and con- try to separate the emotional relationship with it and begin to perceive it as just a tool that was just another tool in my tool case to live my life. Diane, this is amazing. This awareness <laughs> you had in itself, I think, is really impressive. But then you did some things to conquer the this gripping, challenging mindset. Will you share a little bit more about how you did that? That's really hard to do. I think I got thrown into the fire on this one. I can't say that I went to the mountain and became the Dalai Lama when it comes to finances all of a sudden. But Oh, come on, Diane. We have high expectations of you. <laughs> what happened when I ended up with the generalized anxiety disorder I would say the main catalyst of me ending up with the illness was my concern about money. It was almost like a phobia about not having enough and this feeling of scarcity. And I realized that while I was on medical leave trying to recover, really not understanding 100% what was going on because nobody really explains to you this generalized anxiety disorder This is how you recover from it. It's not like you break a hip and somebody says, okay, you're in a cast for six weeks and then you go physical therapy. You have to take it easy and eventually it'll get better. It's kind of amorphous and nobody says anything. But through my treatment, what I realized is that the root of it was really this financial scarcity and this financial insecurity. 
I would say in my Brooklyn grit, I refused to be defeated by it or controlled by it. Like I started to resent the relationship that I had with money, <laughs> which was the, really a driving force in me saying, hey, wait a minute, you're not going to control me anymore. So I really started to focus on working on when a bill came in or something happened that normally I'd freak out. And I'm like, it's just the electric bill. It's a piece of paper. What's it going to do? And it took me, you know, a couple of years of really working through what my relationship was money, what it meant to me, because it obviously means something much deeper than I just don't know if I have the money to pay the rent. It kind of goes into this, am I irresponsible? Am I mature enough? Why do other people seem to have so much ease with money when I have such a conflicted relationship? You really start to dig deep on it. Why do you have this dysfunctional relationship with money and why is it controlling you so much? And it's difficult to kind of wrap your mind around. There were judgments in there, it sounds like. Self-imposed judgment. Yeah, a lot of judgment. This is super interesting. And before we kind of talk about these revelations that you were having, I'm wondering if you could describe what it was like to have general anxiety disorder? And did you equate it to money initially? How can our listeners learn from your aspect, especially those that might be struggling with money? What were the telltale signs for you? It's something I talk about a lot because I want everybody to know, <laughs> know what this is because I had absolutely no clue when it happened. Ultimately, what ended up happening was I had a job that I absolutely loved. And then my partner retired all the management shifted around and changes happened. And I didn't quite really understand how to navigate what was going on. I was already starting to burn out a little bit from the workload. So I had a vulnerability to begin with. And then management shifted. And then my husband and I bought this house that, oh gosh, I was like, no, it just needs to be redecorated. And it did not need to be redecorated. It was like the money trap. It needed to be totally gutted to the bare bones and rebuilt from scratch, which we hadn't anticipated. And so I was beginning to feel insecure in my job because of all the changes. And then I was going through this renovation from Nightmare Before Christmas. And <laughs> collectively, it really started to fester into an overwhelming stress. Like it was a stress that you get ready to go into the bathroom, close the door and just scream for a couple of minutes and say, Calgon, take me away. I was like, okay, I'm under a lot of stress. I've been under stress before. But ultimately what happened was I switched roles in the middle of all this into a role that I was not familiar with the team. I was not familiar with the workload. It was a completely different learning curve that I wasn't prepared for. And over the course of a couple of months, what happened was I was beginning to gain weight. I couldn't sleep. I was just exhausted all the time. I got irritable. I was forgetting things and started to make mistakes, which as an attorney, I was like absolutely horrified. <laughs> you know, if I make a mistake, it's not, oh, I forgot to put the cotton in the aspirin bottle. It's, wow, somebody just got sued for $7 billion. So the stakes were a little bit higher on me making mistakes. So that started... And it started to kind of snowball. You know, I equate it to like when you build one of those little rubber band balls and you kind of start it and it's really hard to do. But as it gets bigger and you start putting the rubber bands on, it gets easier. 
And the anxiety was the same thing. Like in the beginning, it was kind of knotted and really not sure what it was doing. And I was like, oh, I'll take a vacation. I'll be fine. Everything will be great. I'll take a week off and go to the Caribbean. And I would be. And then I'd walk back into the office. And within 15 minutes, I'd be back putting more rubber bands on, getting the ball bigger and bigger and bigger with stress. What happened was I didn't understand what was going on because it was kind of the, no pun intended, the nickel and diming of, <laughs> now we're talking about money. <laughs> you know, it was like a nickel and diming of like, okay, I'm a little stressed. Now I'm stressed about that. And it just kept building like this rubber band ball. I got bad news at work about my performance, which shockeroo, I was making mistakes and just not engaged. And of course, the review is not going to be my usual stellar review. And I got the information on my birthday, which was December 20th. And I started crying and I could not stop crying. And Christmas Eve came and I was still crying. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this is, but this is something way beyond my control. And I finally called up my therapist and said, I can't stop crying. I don't know what this is. And he said, I really think at this stage you have to take medical leave. So that was the buildup to it. It was interesting though, because afterwards, I still didn't really understand what generalized anxiety disorder was. I mean, I looked it up on the internet and they're like, yeah, it's like a worry about a lot of things. I'm like, well, don't a lot of people, <laughs> like, but I don't think a lot of people are sitting around for four days crying. But your mind plays tricks on you. So you think like you go on the vacation, you feel better and then you get back to work and you like sunk back down again. Or I'd wake up in the morning and feel like, I'm like, oh, I got a great night's sleep. Everything's fantastic. And by dinner time, I would just be in a mud puddle again, just exhausted and defeated. So it was this weird thing that if you have a broken leg, you know if your broken leg still hurts. If you have a mental health issue or illness, really your mind plays tricks on you because it's trying to trick you into, you feel better. And then you go and do things and you're like, yeah, maybe I don't really feel better. So it's a tough thing. Thank you for sharing that and bringing that all to life for us. You know, I'm just trying to put myself into your shoes at that time as best as I can. And to go on medical leave, that has money implications. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so... <laughs> Take us through that really quickly before we focus on the learning that you were starting to share earlier. I worked at a firm that had good coverage. And I also live in New York, which has its own laws and rights that people have, which are probably better than some other states. I'm not sure about the other states, but I know New York has definitely has a lot of protections for employees. And so when I went on medical leave, there was a six-month short-term disability policy that the firm had. The first six months, I received my regular pay and my regular benefits. Nothing had changed except that I wasn't going to work, which was really weird because I felt like I was a fraud and I wasn't earning anything. And who was I to take this money that I wasn't working for? And it was this really weird, complicated gosh, of trying to recover and understand that and then trying to reconcile. Even if I do go back to work, how do I tell my co-workers why I was out on medical leave because there's so much stigma associated with mental health. And then it's like, oh, you just couldn't cut it. You know, oh, you know, like New York's pretty brutal in the workforce when it comes to, <laughs> to employees' resiliency. It fed my financial insecurity. And then 
about six months into medical leave, they switched the policy to a long-term disability. And then the insurance company decided that I wasn't disabled anymore. And they cut all my benefits again on my birthday. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Hit a person when she's down. Yes. They called me on December 13th and they said, oh, we stopped your benefits as of December 12th. And it's a Friday afternoon and I'm like, okay, so now I have no income and I'm not well. How do I make money? So I really think that that was the beginning of me having to evaluate my relationship with money from the standpoint of it being the root cause of so much turmoil, so much fear. Oh man, Diane, this story, and it's unbelievable and you're sharing is what a gift because I think people experience these things and when we hear the stories, it really helps us. I wonder if you could share a little bit more. I feel like you right now, I feel wronged by this insurance company that they've now decided you're well. I'd love to hear, what did you do about that? Could you challenge them? I mean, you know, it's funny because it, funny, ironic, not funny, haha. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it happened in December of 2019. I'm still writing letters to the insurance company. It had gone to appeal. They decided without speaking to me or my doctors that I was still not disabled. It went to court. There's a 30-page court opinion about the review that they did. The judge ordered them to go back and reevaluate. They've been reevaluating since April and from April until now, they keep saying, we don't have enough information. And I'm like, you have 290 pages of documents and 11 pages of doctor's reports with codes and visitation dates and everything else. What could you possibly need? <laughs> it's still ongoing. But for the four years that it's been going on, we went through COVID. It has not been an easy path since then. Yeah, if you want to talk about life changes, go on medical leave for an anxiety disorder, lose all of your income, and then have a pandemic for three years. Let's see how things are once you can take your mask off and walk outside again. And yet you're still laughing. <laughs> a lot of strength. Tell us about this time period when you're starting to really connect. Because you said back in your 20s, you were sort of aware of this relationship with money being off a little bit. And then this generalized anxiety disorder experience caused you to really connect the dots. How did you work with that? And who was helping you get through that period of time and shift your relationship with money? I think all of these kind of things happen in baby steps. Some people maybe have this epiphany that something happens and they end up having clarity on situations. It wasn't like that for me. I, I actually joke around that it's more like the Forrest Gump approach where things happen to me a little here and a little there. Before I went to law school, I actually dropped out of high school to go get a job so I can make money because it was all about like, how much money can I make? And I was like, wait a second, I can't do this for my whole life. So I went back and I went to community college, got a associate degree. I went to get my bachelor's degree. I went into grad school. Like, and I just kind of baby stepped at every step of the way. It was like, hey, do you want to do graduate work in this? And I'm like, yeah, okay, why not? 
I'll do graduate work in bioremediation. Like, what is it? And so I studied mineral building bacteria in the third water tunnel for two years. And then I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to get a job making money doing this. So how am I going to pay the rent? Again, the conversation manifested. And I eventually was like, well, if I go to law school, I'll make money. So I ended up going to law school because one, my sense of justice and fairness is extremely high. And it really upsets me when I see marginalized individuals being taken advantage of. So I went in and I went to law school. But again, it was like, I can't go be an assistant DA. They only make 30, 40,000 a year. Like I need to make money. (laughs) So I went for these jobs that would make money, but they were interestingly, mostly in male dominated practice areas. So I worked in futures and options exchanges where it was all men and like two or three women. And then I ended up in mergers and acquisitions, all men, a few women. And so I was making the money, but I was also in this environment that was not very nurturing. And you also are trying to find your purpose, it sounds like. And here we are today. And you are a reinvention expert. So you coach on this. How did you reinvent yourself? You take a step back and you have to actually get off the train once in a while to take in the view. I realized that I wasn't taken in the view that I was on almost like one of those bullet trains in Japan that was just speeding by and speeding by. And I was losing who I was and I was losing my purpose and my intention. And I look at how many years do we have on this planet? And I grew up feeling like money was the limiting reagent in my life. The reality is, is time is the limiting reagent. So how much time do you have left and how much do you want to waste it chasing something that when your time is over is not going to make any difference? Part of my recovery was taking a pause and really looking at who I was and what I wanted and what was important to me. And also my fantastic and amazing son is an inspiration in that He came to me while I was on medical leave, actually, and he said to me, I have a choice of these three jobs. And he explained the three jobs to me. He said, I really like this one. He said, in this one, I don't like it all, but it pays a lot. And I was like, oh, no, I did exactly what my mother did to me, (laughs) to my son. (laughs) And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'll pay for the therapy, like whatever it needs to fix this, I'll fix it. And I sat down with him and I had a conversation. We kind of drew this grid and I said, well, let's write the pros and the cons of each job and we'll do, you know, financial, spiritual, lifestyle. You know, we did this whole grid. And I said to him, you can take the job with more money, but is it going to feed your soul? The money is not going to really make you as happy. And he ultimately took the job that was paying less and has a fantastic boss. And I think he's been there now like, I don't know, five years. And his boss supports him in everything. Oh, you want to move to Massachusetts? We'll find you a job there. You want to get promoted or go to school? We'll give you time off to do that. So it's, it's been a really good experience for him. That conversation of his three job offers really woke me up a little bit that I was like, I'm continuing to perpetuate this terrible relationship with money. <laughs> to the next generation. And then it's going to be my grandchildren who have it. It's just going to keep going. So I have to stop the madness now. 
So that's kind of what really what woke me up to it, to start really analyzing and thinking about it. Dan, have you talked to your mom about your relationship with money, her relationship with money? I have tried. I joke with her that I think I was adopted at switched to birth or something. Because my mother and my brother have very similar political views. They're very similar. And I remember even at four years old, looking at them going, I don't think I belong here. I just never really felt like I fit in with them. Now we're growing up and my mother's 85 years old and it's no different. I mean, nothing's changed. The conversations are still the same. Her anxiety about money is just as strong that it still keeps her up at night. And I say to her, mom, you're 85 years old. You've never been homeless. We've always had food on the table. I've never been homeless. Your health is pretty good for an 85-year-old. What gives? At what point are you going to let this go? And she just is like, I don't know. And that's kind of the best I can get out of her right now. (laughs) That's been her mantra. Yeah. So tell us, what's your relationship with money like today? Well, starting a business, my relationship with money is I'd love to get a winning lottery ticket because I didn't realize how much money it costs to start a business. My relationship with money now is, I mean, there's still fear there. There's still apprehension. And I don't know if that's because of what I grew up with or now because I've decided to start a business and challenge my economic situation in that way. But I think that it's much healthier. I realize that I have the capability, the knowledge, the connections to go out and make money if I need to make it. I don't know why it took me so long to realize I had those resources because I always knew I had them, but there's the illogical lizard brain is saying, no, you don't have enough. So (laughs) I think my relationship with money is we're in therapy together. We're working it out is what I would say. It has less of an emotional hold on me than it used to. The feeling of scarcity is not gone. And that's mostly due to starting the business and investing a lot into it. But we should probably catch up in like a year or two. And maybe that conversation will be much different. (laughs) I can't wait to do that. (laughs) Diane, this has been such a special conversation about you and money. And we're curious, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who is it going to be with? Probably my next money conversation will be with my husband. Mostly because we have regular check-ins anyway. When I start to freak out about, I spent too much money, I'm so sorry. And he's like, nope, you're starting a business. It's all cool. Let's just do it. We'll be fine no matter what you do. So yeah, probably the next conversation is with him. Towards the end of the month, we do it at least probably once a month. And it's just, are we still okay not being okay? And he usually says, yep, we're okay not being okay. Let's just keep going. It's a reinforcement. So it's good. Diane, what a great conversation. Before we (laughs) let you go, where's the best place for people to find you? Best place is either my website, which is sortingitout.co. The M is not there. Or LinkedIn. LinkedIn is just, it's all one word, Diane O'Connell. I post all the time. I post videos mostly about well-being and inclusion and belonging and how that impacts business. So they can tune in that way. Diane, you are lifting people up by sharing your journey. Thank you so much for sharing that with us on Money Tales. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. 
Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time. Thank you.